Everyone has a Melvin Udall in their life. That misanthropic, toxic, mean, mean person who just can't help but be around. Whether it's a neighbor, regular at your cafe, or just walking down the street, Melvin Udall is unavoidable. The Melvin Udall of As Good As It Gets is played by Jack Nicholson. This casting is key because Melvin is the most unlikely hero of a romantic comedy. Even the grumpiness of a Mr. Darcy doesn't even register on the Richter scale of how devastating a person Melvin is. Openly racist, sexist, homophobic, our first impression of Melvin is not great. He berates his gay neighbor and dumps his dog down a garbage chute. Not a great look. The one person who can tolerate him is Carol Connolly, his regular waitress at his regular cafe. Melvin has a routine, which he is forced to stick to by what seems to be a form of obsessive-compulsive personality disorder. When Carol considers leaving the cafe to be closer to her chronically sick son, Melvin undertakes a series of actions to take care of Carol's problems so that she can keep taking care of his. As Good As It Gets presents a morally complicated and fascinating tale. What happens when the world's most selfish man embarks on a journey of altruism, and is it really altruistic if it's still self-serving? Does it even matter? Fate and circumstance bring Melvin, Carol, and Melvin's gay neighbor, Simon Bishop, together for a road trip from New York City to Baltimore, where Simon must get the courage to ask for money from his distant parents. What ensues is a chemical combustion of three very different personalities. The dynamics are fascinating. Carol and Simon get along immediately, which only inflames Melvin's jealousy. But Carol makes it clear to Melvin that a relationship can't be a series of reciprocating good deeds. So the big question is this, is Melvin capable of selfless love? Written and directed by James L. Brooks, As Good As It Gets perhaps is one of the most densely plotted, character-driven rom-coms that's also funny, warm, and surprising. Um, nice, it's, uh, looks good. They, uh, they got your music. Paintings, paints, I have to say they did a good job. It's, uh... No, it's gonna be okay, huh? Cozy, huh? Yeah. Thank you, Melvin. You overwhelmed me. I love you. I tell you, buddy, I'd be the luckiest guy alive if that did it for me. I don't even know where to start with this. This movie? Should we start with our history with this movie? Because I had a, uh, I have an. I have an interesting backstory with this movie. Lay it on me. The last time I watched this movie was in your room, which was next to my room, which wasn't even a room. It was an unfinished closet that was the size of a bedroom. Yeah, it had a lot of rebar coming out of the walls. Yeah, and it was pure cement, and you brought in um, It was so rugs. cold that winter. <laughs> it was a horrible situation for you, but I don't remember you paying much rent at all. Or did I make you pay a lot of rent? I can't remember. Well, unfortunately, I don't mean to call you out here, but... um, Oh, no. I I don't want to tell this story anymore. No, no, no. Um, 
the the whole qualification for the roommates letting me come over and be part of your house was that I would pay as much rent as everybody else and make all of their rent cheaper. Oh, that's <laughs> so, not fair. But at the same time, I think we were all paying like 200 bucks a month. That was Spokane, Washington money. It doesn't run on American money. <laughs> you didn't have access to your room. You had to get it through my room. Which was unfortunate for both of us. I feel like uh, we both should have been compensated in some way. But we made that decision, and by God, we stuck stuck, stuck with it. Yeah, so you had this movie on your computer, I think. I had the I had the DVD of it, yeah. Um, oh, okay. And we watched it on my... Mm, Why did we watch... We watched it in your room for some reason. I think we... Uh, oh, I know why. I guess the roommates were doing something upstairs. That or, and or it was just cool in college to watch a movie on a bed with all of your friends. Yeah. So Sarah was there. I wanted to, things were like there, it was flirty between us. Like it was, there were things, but she wasn't sure how she felt about me. So I didn't really pay attention the last time I watched this movie because most of the time I was just trying to not get fresh as it were, but just kind of, you know, be available. If, you know, hands wanted to be held, shoulders be grazed against. None of that happened. Tell me what get fresh means. I don't want (laughs) to. Do it. Um, In the 50s, the kids used to take girls to the movies and make out in the movie theaters, Uh in the darkened movie theaters. I feel like uh, if you're getting fresh with someone, though, it's like it's like almost um, I don't want to say an attack. There's got to be a softer word than attack where it's like, yeah, I I was just standing there, you know, doing my thing. And all of a sudden she got fresh with me. And oh, yeah. um, And it's just like "Mm," it it was unasked for. And I guess it's up to the receiver (laughs) whether whether it continues. (laughs) I did want to ask this before I finish my story of how I didn't watch this movie last time. It's gonna have a. This is a personal question. Have you or have you observed um, making out in the movie theater? I have like not a kiss, making out like extensive kissing in the movie theater. I mean, I haven't sat back in the cut and just been like, mm, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I've seen people make out in the movie theater, like for an extensive amount of time. Like I said. I haven't sat and watched somebody make out in a movie theater for a long time, but I have. Yeah. Like, you mean for longer than like 10 seconds? Yeah. Yeah. Like, I, I've i done that in one movie. Good for you. With me. Which movie? What movie? <laughs> it was in college. Um, it was Labyrinth um, at the Garland Theater, which was like mine and Ryan's college town's uh, buck 50 movie theater. Yeah, cheap theater. Midnight movie, Labyrinth. I'd never, the tragedy was I'd never seen it before and I had just started. And you still of, haven't. <laughs> <laughs> no, I have now. Um, but it was, it was unfair to Labyrinth because, uh, you know, partway through the movie, I was looking over and missing all the Jim Henson-ness of it. And I was like, oh, well, I mean, I'm caught between a, a rock and a pair of lips right now. So. <laughs> well, good for you. I, I just, I think it, it's weird. I've never done it. I feel like it's sacrilege to you. Well, kind of. And I've never seen it either. That's the weird part. I've been to so movies and I haven't seen people making out. Maybe it's because I don't go to like shitty movies where people are just like, this is a shitty movie. You want to just make out. Um. Well, the, the best place to look if you're, if you're next time in a theater and you're just wondering whether people are doing it, look to the back corners. Hmm. Mm. See, you're you're kind of an uh, 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 an upper thirds sitter, right? Sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So you're, maybe you're just not 
you maybe needs to get some glasses or some binoculars, but don't do that. Don't bring binoculars yeah, and just start looking at people in a movie theater. <laughs> I just think it's an interesting phenomenon. I just hope, uh, I don't know if I hope kids are still doing it or, you know, maybe they shouldn't pay attention to movies like this. Wait, have you, in, wait, wait, wait. Is this like a dream of yours? Do you need to, is this um, podcast confessions right now? I don't know. Maybe, maybe when they, maybe when they open the theaters again, me and my wife can go and just make out. Because when you have a kid, like we do, we don't have a lot of time. Don't you, like, basically kind of run a theater? Couldn't you just make it happen where you're, like, you rent out a theater that and make out? That wouldn't count. <laughs> that feels creepy. That wouldn't count. It's got to, you got to be sly about it. So it's less creepy if there's people in the room. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. Fair. Well, um, well okay. And I'm. Yeah, we, there's less chance to get caught. You gotta yeah, get- yeah. It, it's all about the danger, really. I, you know, I, um, I have to say though, it's not my cup of tea. Like, cause I did it in college once, but then I was dating somebody once who v- very frequently wanted to make out during like movies that I had paid to go to and that I really wanted to see, and they'd just be like, "Come right. make out with me," and I'm like, "I, I'm here to, I'm here to watch a movie." Right. Also, sucking face. You don't want to be that couple. Who's like making scoochy noises, like right next to somebody else? <laughs> I, at least I couldn't handle that. I'm, I'm way too self conscious about the noise I make in theaters. Have you seen uh, Cinema Paradiso? I I just told the story about how I made out in a movie. That is Paradise in the Cinema. Oh no, I haven't. <laughs> that movie is like. Yeah, people would make out. They'd give each other handies at the movie theater while all the babies were screaming in there. I'm like, wow, Italy was wild. <laughs> Wait, you're taking your... Yeah. I, I also won't take a baby into a movie theater unless it's unless there's nobody else in there. We'll see what Theo's first movie will be. But if they re-release the Star Wars movies like post-quarantine like quarantine, like reinvigorate the movie theaters which i think disney should do oh, totally I think that'd be really cool. a re-release of the un um george lucas versions C- can't do that unfortunately like george lucas is like over my dead <sighs> uh, but if they release some kind of star wars um in the theaters i might be tempted to take my three-month-old to the movies he's not he's not <laughs> like allowed he, baby. he wouldn't pay attention so no so he wouldn't eh, yeah okay yeah. I feel like it's it's Anyways, the it's the one year olds you have to watch out for in the theater where they yeah. start yelling. Yeah. There we went and saw Toy Story Four. There was a two year old next to me. Speaking of little kids, how was Jesse James in this movie for you? Jesse James? That's uh Helen Hunt's kid. That's the actor. His name is Jesse James? Yeah. Like the Jesse James? Like the Jesse James. He's the reincarnated cowboy <laughs> outlaw. <laughs> I liked him. Uh, I I liked this cast. Uh, I liked this movie. I I'm glad I, I finally watched it and paid attention to it. Unlike college me, who was distracted by the girl that he wanted to date, um, that worked out. But I, I I very much enjoyed it this time around. I want to hear about your experience with uh, this movie. I I also enjoyed it. You know, it's. And can can we say right up front? Um, I think it's the most unlikable character, like protect. Well, it's hard to say that he's our sole protagonist, but he's the one we're introduced to first. So I'm going to say he's our he's the he's lead the lead he's character, the lead. our uh, Jack Nicholson. He's the most unlikable character, and I forgot exactly how unlikable and why he was unlikable. And so after the first ten minutes, I was kind of afraid that I was going to come down on 
not enjoying this movie as much as I used to, but this movie is smartly written. It's got James L. Brooks at the helm and it writes complicated characters with lots of layers. And it really like every single character is a character. I, 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 against all of my um, fears, I loved this movie. Not loved. Loved is mm-hmm. a strong word. I really liked it. I loved it. I I loved it. Why don't you marry it? I can't. <laughs> Wish I could. I won't. Uh, the you're right. I loved it for all the reasons that you liked it. I I that, really liked it. Let me let me say that you really liked it. Um. So why don't we just jump right into what this movie is? Sure. Um. Do you want me to describe things, or do you want to describe? I things? can do it this time. Basically, we have a extremely jaded, OCD, slightly racist, sexist, um, homophobic writer in Jack Nicholson who ends up befriending his next door neighbor, who is uh, played by Greg Kinnear, who is gay. And that's a a big part of uh, the character development between them. Um, and, uh, the story kind of catalogs how this man, Jack Nicholson ends up kind of softening and learning how to communicate with people in a way that isn't completely disrespectful. And part of the reason he does that is because he meets Helen Hunt or he doesn't meet, but he's known Helen Hunt for a long time. She's a waitress at his local diner that he goes to and through kind of his experiences with these two characters, he becomes a more broad, loving human being. But in a very realistic manner that he isn't a completely different no, person. In no, the not movie. at all. He's still a, he's still a very troublesome person, which is why the third act is got its work cut out for itself when it's trying to do the work of a uh, spoiler alert, getting Jack Nicholson and Helen Hunt together. Um, and it's, it, there's when the third act of the movie started, I'm just kind of sitting there. I'm like, I don't know why Helen Hunt would still bother to consider him as a romantic interest. I just, I'm not buying it right now, but the third act, it was like, I'm aware of that and I'm going to work with you on this. And by the end of the movie, I'm hoping that you're going to buy it. Yeah. This, this movie really, so Jack Nicholson's character is someone who, who does good acts, but that does not erase who he is integrally Uh, because like you can't just change who you are over the course of an evening or a road trip. And what this movie does is it keeps reminding the viewer, Jack Nicholson is not miraculously a good human being all of a sudden because he's done one good thing. And um, I think that's part of uh, how smart this script is, is it's not afraid to remind the character or remind the audience how unlikable their lead character can be. What do they teach you to talk like this in some Panama City sailor want a hump hump bar or is this getaway day and your last shot at his whiskey? Sell crazy someplace else. We're all stocked up here. And that's what makes him feel more real, like an actual human being. Right. So um, I think the the really important thing about the character Melvin Udall Thank you. <laughs> is he, Jack Nicholson playing Melvin Udall, um, 
and only Jack Nicholson could play Melvin Udall, right? I can't think of anyone else nailing it. Yeah, uh, I was thinking maybe if you wanted to take like just a little bit different spin, you could do an Anthony Hopkins. I mean, think of like think about yeah. um, mid '90s Anthony Hopkins with the slick backed hair. He would be a little bit more sophisticated simply because he has a more sophisticated accent, but he he would he would play the quieter miserly one um i think rather than jack nicholson's like explosive racism and like digging like cuz you know yeah you know an actor who could pull it off but persona wise wouldn't be accepted the audiences wouldn't go for it i think the actor tom hanks could actually do this role but people would be an open rebellion state your case the whole point of melvin is that as a terrible as much of a terrible person he is there's so much charisma dripping from jack nicholson throughout the yeah movie. he is charismatic all you need is a really charismatic actor and i think tom hanks rivals jack nicholson in terms of charisma so i feel like i kind of want to watch a tom hanks version of this it's just we would never accept a persona by tom hanks i'm trying this. to think of a movie that tom hanks has done where he has played somebody who is charismatic but unlikable and i'm the only one that's coming to mind is the lady killers i haven't seen that one the only the closest one you have is a league of their own yeah but he's wonderful in that film i know he's a drunk but he's a lovable yeah. drunk i think so melvin you don't Mel- let's, let's let's dive into let's, his character a little bit yeah uh, I was watching it. Sarah was watching kind of it, kind of watching it. And I was asking her, her therapeutic, her psychological uh, expertise on it. I'm like, is this accurate? And she's, she explained to me and maybe I'll have to like fact check myself. Um, but M- Melvin basically is suffering from obsessive compulsive personality disorder. It's not necessarily OCD. It's obsessive compulsive personality disorder. Um, and he basically does what he does because he's set in his ways and it's very hard for him to break out of his patterns. And so what we see in the first part of the movie is that he has very definitive patterns. Mm. If anything changes, he immediately becomes nervous, insecure, anxious, confrontational, distractible, like all of his defenses immediately are heightened. Yeah. And it's an ailment by his own words. He'll call it an mm-hmm. ailment. And so he's very clean he needs to keep things in his life clean. he doesn't let anybody in his apartment but himself at least you know at the beginning yeah the dog at first seems to be completely disruptive to his life and so much so that he'll throw a dog down a garbage yeah. chute let's let's like really illustrate his character um he, he in the first five minutes of knowing him he throws a small dog down a garbage disposal with with no like sympathy no like mm, sorry <laughs> but he's just like see yeah. you i've really and he tries what he was trying to do first was lure him outside yeah then he insults his neighbor um and he uses all sorts of fun words to do that and oh well he reveals his homophobia and his racism in five like, like the first the, five minutes in the same sentence yeah. <laughs> um i love it when cuba cuba gooding jr plays um the he's the art dealer that is um, kind of takes care of Greg Kinnear a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and he chases uh, Melvin down the, down the hallway at one point in time when he like, doesn't want him 
being mean to Greg Kinnear anymore. And Melvin runs away and he's just like, Now I am really pissed! Oh, don't touch! Don't touch! Don't touch! Shut up! You okay. think you can intimidate the whole world with your attitude, but you don't intimidate me. I grew up in hell, homeboy. My grandmother had more attitude. Police! Don't act much, morons! Help me! Help me! Help me! Assault and battery, and you're black! I like Simon. I like him enough to batter you unrecognizable if you verbally abuse him or so much as touch that dog again. Meantime, I'm gonna think of some way that you can make it up to him. I paid doing this! I'm an art dealer. Have a nice day. Hey, party! Party! The fact, the fact that all these characters, like even deal with Melvin, um, makes this world a very real place. Because a lot of the times we want to write off people like Melvin who are so disagreeable and cantankerous. But what this movie does is it says, well, we live in a world with these people. Maybe the best solution is to involve them in your life more. Yeah. I mean, not not and... actively necessarily, because he's the one who ends up involving himself in other people's lives, but that's what changes him for the best. Yeah, so what's really cool, I think, what I like about this movie a lot is the actual prime motivator <clears throat> that causes all the change for the characters. And it's, it starts with Melvin. Um, so it gets, it's, it, it's complicated. This is a, like a two and a half hour movie because there's a lot to like, um, the movie has a lot of moving pieces that it needs, it needs to set up. I was thinking like, okay, if I was reading the screenplay and I know that there's certain rules that screenplays need to be, it's like, it can't be so long. I would be so hard pressed to like figure out where to make a cut because everything that happens needs to happen that the the um, Simon needs to get attacked by that model. And in order to set up the model, like attacking him and his crew attacking him, you need to set up what the model was doing there in the first place. And, and, and not only that, you have to have set up like Simon's life beforehand and kind of illustrate yeah. what kind of life he's living and his relationship to the other characters. Um, and Simon himself is a huge character with a huge story and arc. Same with Helen Hunt. Yeah. And they're not connected at first. And so you have to set them up as independent from each other, which you can't cheat and kind of like have one sequence, one scene, like uh, the Godfather, you know, the opening sequence is like 45 minutes, but it's just one long scene where you're introduced every single character in the movie and you're done. And they're all at the same wedding. But this it's like, okay, well we set up Simon now we have to go set up Carol, who has nothing to do with Simon. Now we have to set up how Mike Melvin relates to all of them. There's so much to do. So, anyways, uh, where does where does it begin? Melvin, I think I think the crux of everything happens with the attack. So, Melvin has a bad relationship with his neighbor because he doesn't like his dog, and he's just an unlikable neighbor. And the one person he does seem to enjoy is Helen Hunt's character, Carol, who is uh, like the only waitress at the diner that he goes to who will stand him and is is kind to him. Exactly. Yeah. And going back to his personality disorder, 
it's just like he has a system where he eats lunch seemingly every day at this cafe. His waitress is Carol. Um, she's the one who takes care of him. And if she's not the one taking care of him, just that in itself disrupts his day. Yeah, it, it disrupts his entire life when she has a, a kid, Spence, who has uh, all sorts of lung issues. And he he ends up ha- having such a hard time that she ends up having to quit his job. And it completely derails um, Melvin's life. Yeah. Um, and so he'll go to any lengths to restore order to his life. Why did you do this for me? So you'd come back to work and wait on me. Do you have some idea how strange that sounds? So let's talk about that plot for a second. Let's just talk about... Because that's a fascinating character right there. Yeah. Who is incapacitated. He's basically... A Bob from What About Bob, but much less huggable. Yeah, that's a really good way to put <laughs> Thank it. you. Him and Carol, their relationship is really weird to from the get-go because basically she does things for him. That he has a lifestyle that is dependent on Carol serving that aspect of his lifestyle is that he's waited on at this restaurant so that she can bring him this kind of food. And if that doesn't happen, it's dis- it's destructive to his life. So... She is probably quitting her job so that she can take care of her son. And so what Melvin does is that he goes to his publisher and he basically begs his publisher's husband, who is a physician, to go all the way to Brooklyn to check out this kid, to run tests, to do something that doctors today would be very hard pressed to do on you know their own volition well especially today they're a little busy with covid but on a non-covid day uh would never i just can't fathom anyone doing this for rich people it's just one of the most astounding like acts of you know doctor care and melvin will front the entire bill wait, wait, what do you mean for, for rich people uh just like making house calls you know well, he just, does it for poor people though no that's why i'm astounded by it like oh oh i i see what you're saying yeah gotcha yeah yeah, this physician who knows his stuff uh, makes a house call to check on Spence and basically is going to change their life medically is that no more does Spencer have to go to the emergency room like several times a week. He will get the care that he's been needing all this time and Melvin will front the entire bill, which we've got to believe like even... Just because it was the 90s, I'm sure it was still expensive then. Healthcare is expensive now. It was expensive then. Yeah. Is going to be substantial. And uh, okay, before we before we get that far with the story, something happens in between then that makes um, like because you think that if you know he's just this guy who comes into the restaurant all the time and then he finds out that she's going to leave the restaurant if her son isn't taken care of and then he takes care of her son, that in and of itself is a pretty basic kind of beginning to a romance but what happens in between there is he insults or is very uncaring about her son in the restaurant at one point in time a short stack coffee with cream and sweetener you're gonna die soon with that diet you know that well we're all gonna die soon i will you will and it sure sounds like your son will and then he comes over to her house when she isn't at work one day and he's like, what are you not doing at work? And she's like, I don't need to talk to you. This is like, this is my home. 
I, I don't have to talk to you when I'm not at work. And then, you know, he's he's trying to be interested in her, but he's trying to eventually get her back to work. And then he like the he says hi to her kid and he doesn't say anything because he's nervous. And he's like, hey, you know, you should really talk to your elders when they talk to you. And then she's like, get out, leave. Mm-hmm. And they have this very complicated relationship where it's not that complicated, but it is layered. And so oh, when yeah. he does reach out to her, it and and basically save her life from being so complicated and frustrating by taking care of her son. She doesn't know how to handle that information because uh, very much like a, 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 a Gilmore, she doesn't want to be beholden to somebody for something. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And it's a completely seemingly a completely selfless act, but in reality, it's the most selfish thing he can do because he's just like, I don't want anything return. I just want you to go to work and be my waitress again. That's all. That's it. I don't want anything else. Which I like the simplicity of that. Yeah. And it's a whole thing where she's she's very rightly concerned to think, I hope this guy isn't expecting sex from me. Like, I hope he's just not trying to buy his way into like some kind of sexual relationship with me and use me. And she says that, too, when she shows up at his door. Yeah. And she's like, I'm not going to sleep with you. I will never sleep with you. Never, ever. Not ever. Always good to hear a woman scream that. <laughs> as soon as he hears her say that, like, I, you got to kind of wonder that, like, he never thought of that as a possibility until she said that, because it's right after that scene that we find him, like, up at night thinking about that. Yeah. And um, I think it's, it's, this is, this script just does so many, like, um, it gets away with so much because what, Melvin is, is a selfish person who will do extraordinary things for people, extraordinary things for people. Um, but it's mostly self-serving. Yeah. It does not erase his selfishness. It's just that he's, he, it's almost making a case for saying humans need humans, thus people with money in order to get what they want. It's, I mean, it's kind of a voodoo economics thing. Something D-O-O economics. Voodoo economics. Where it's like a top-down, <laughs> um, or I, not voodoo, but trickle-down economics. Where his emotional life depends on other people. He mm-hmm. doesn't need to acknowledge that until it interrupts his life. And then when it does, he's like, okay, now I will care about your problems so that it will fix mine. Yeah. And and it's extremely selfish, but it it lends itself to a really good romantic comedy because now that he is interested in Helen Hunt as a romantic in a romantic way, in addition to her waiting skills, um he has to he has to learn how to be something of a kind person if he wants to see that through to any kind of conclusion. Yeah. And what we see is Melvin is capable of doing extraordinary things for people. Sometimes it's, you know, just because he has the money to do it. Other times he will go to the lengths to make it happen. And for him to go to his publisher and kind of grovel to his publisher, and it's not humiliating for him, but he goes out in public to go do it. Well, yeah. Okay, let's let's be really real about that. He does not grovel. He says, I'm your highest paid person. You 
need to do this. And she's like, I don't have to do this, but okay. And then he insults her and then leaves. <laughs> like Melvin does. Right, right. I, it's not out of character. I just I just want to illustrate that he's not groveling. He's just groveling right, for Melvin. True. He's like Mr. Darcy's drunk uncle. Like, like just yeah. no his, charm. His, his <laughs> just all the terrible uncle. things. Yeah. <laughs> And that that being said, like, as as unlikable as he is, I kind of like him. I like almost every single character in this movie. Mm-hmm. Like, and that's that is what I I love about the writing of this movie. That's and spoiler, I'm giving the writing of this movie a five because even the character um, at, at one point in time, I think it's his publicist greg kinnear's publicist and and now let's jump back into greg kinnear's life a little bit because he's really attached to this as well um earlier on in the script before helen hunt quits before anything else happens um basically greg kinnear is a painter and a slightly famous one at that and his publicist finds him a hooker that is that he like finds on a street a male hooker who he like brings in what's what's the PC term for hooker these days? Uh, sex worker. Um, yeah, I, I don't I know don't if know he's if a sex a... worker professional, but he's definitely like out on the street. Um, that's definitely the the necessary thing is that he's he's a street person, and part of the, like the question that would come up during the movie is why didn't they catch the guys who did it is like there needs to be not a paper trail that leads back to they have a a a painting representation of him already they yeah (laughs) like he could give that to the cops but if it was a real model who is part of an agency boom roasted right Right. and so it is a really smartly written part of the script and not only that but he gets this this model comes over and he paints him for two weeks and right when he's finishing up the model is basically scamming him and he's having a whole bunch of his friends come through or a couple of his friends come through the apartment and rob Greg Kinnear unsuspectingly, but it humanizes that model so much because when he's trying to pull off this grift, he sees him, the painting that Greg Kinnear made of him and is immediately racked with guilt. And he's never seen himself in such like a beautiful light. And, as soon as Greg Kinnear gets hurt by one of his like fellow robbers, he's just like, Oh no, what have I done? Yeah. And even though he's scummy, I think what this movie is trying to say most of all is people aren't perfect. A lot of them are bad, but they're still humans and they yeah. still have a huge range of emotion. Yeah. yeah. And it's like the people who are bad will reform, but they, <laughs> they can only reform so much that melvin will for the rest of his life is gonna be an asshole he's just gonna be an asshole i don't i don't know if this movie is saying that i think it's saying it takes a lot of work to reform you yeah i i just think there's gonna be some bad habits that he'll never be completely rid of sure and that's okay and i think the movie is saying like he is not what his words from his mouth are he is his actions and it's a fair thing to say that melvin's selfish but it's also fair to say that he would do anything for his friends um, but he just needs a reason to do it. And I, I don't think the Melvin at the beginning would have, but I think the Melvin, and this is why I'm saying that it kind of talks about evolution is because you kind of see whenever 
Whenever any character who is gay kind of gets close to Melvin, he kind of recoils and backs off. Or if anyone like reaches out to touch him, even if it's in affection, he recoils. But that becomes lessened over the course of the film. Mm-hmm. Towards the end, he reaches out and touches Greg Kinnear. Oh, does he? I didn't even notice that. Yeah, it's it's uh, when Greg Kinnear's in his room and he like reaches yeah. out and almost doesn't and then does touch him. And yeah, so I, I really think it's talking about like he will do things for his friends for sure, but he becomes a better person by the end of this movie. Yeah. Yeah. Not only through um, his actions, but through his words too. Yeah. The words are harder for him. Actions are easy <laughs> for him. <laughs> words are hard for him. Um, so with uh, Greg Kinnear, um, the dog needs somewhere to stay because Greg Kinnear's stuck in the hospital. After and he gets so, beat up. Where'd I go? Yeah, so Cuba Gooding Jr., who has been needing Melvin to pay him back for attacking the dog in the first place, has finally found the thing that he can do to make it up to Simon. And he <laughs> makes Melvin care for the dog. And it's like, that's a big risk, Cuba Gooding Jr., big risk. And can we just say that this is prime time Cuba Gooding Jr. years? Because mm-hmm. this is like right around Jerry Maguire time. And I, I, I like him in the late 90s. We don't like him after that. <laughs> well, I, I don't really know him much after that. Um, the can I, I I'd like to rewrite the movie a little bit at this point, though. OK, so Greg Kinnear gets beat up and then we kind of cut to afterwards where we kind of get that Melvin was the one who called the cops because he yeah. heard he heard some stuff going down, then called the cops Um I think this movie would have been better served if the door had been open and we had seen, and maybe this was in the movie somewhere or in the script, but Melvin walking in to see Greg Kinnear hurt Mm -hmm. and then deciding to call the cops. You write your first draft with your heart and you rewrite with your head. I think you can start to win us over just a little bit to the Melvin side or like to liking Melvin just a little bit more um, earlier if he sees the way Greg Kinnear is beat up and then calls the cops because you could you could even shoot it in a way where you see a little bit of doubt on his face like uh, is this mine to deal with right now? Yeah, 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 I have to deal with this because otherwise it's just him kind of calling because he heard a, a kerfuffle. Yeah, I would say that'd be too soon. I, I don't need it to be like super altruistic and him really caring for Greg Kinnear, but I don't need, I don't want the one percent altruistic. I want it to be I, late. I I, on, I I just think um the idea of seeing a little bit into the humanity of his character, but have him try to hide it. At some point in time, it worked as it was, but um, I think it would have been a really powerful scene if he found Greg Kinnear. Yeah, I like what they do as it is, mostly because I like it. I like it starting with the dog. And like, yeah, because the dog really opens up his heart. Yeah, really does. And really unexpected. It's a it's a gateway for him caring about humans. Um, Start small. 
Start with a dog. That's what this mm-hmm. movie is saying. Start with a dog yeah. if you if you have a hard time caring about people, and then work your way from there. Well, it's classic uh, Hollywood using animals to yeah. humanize and to like win people over and win over an audience. Rom com check. Dog. Dog. Yeah. Not a disabled dog. There will be more disabled animals later. Um, <clears throat> it's it's not a uh, is it no? What's his name from Parks and Rec? Bullseye. No. Oh, champion. Gosh, champion, <laughs> champion. Uh, so the I would like you all to observe the use of the zoom lens throughout this movie on the dog, especially on um, the dog. I think most of the principal characters get a zoom zoom in close up in this movie. And the dog is probably the best one is I think it's when Melvin's locking his door. Mm hmm. And the dog's lying down. We zoom in on the dog and there's something, you know, the zoom lens is traditionally used for far cheaper productions. It's kind of a soap opera thing. It's a lot easier to do than tracking, but is generally less smooth. And it's usually, you'll notice it more in a Quentin Tarantino movie who uses it to snap things up and make it more exciting. Or in my new genre i'm watching a lot these days is a kung fu movies is that the zoom lens is just used to make things more exciting um uh, but in the soap opera thing it's used to make it more dramatic because you push in on someone's like face um but not push in but zoom in um and it works just with to great effect because we so see it so rarely in a well-done rom-com or well-done drama like this and it's schmaltzy but it really works for this genre mm-hmm yeah mm-hmm I think it gets away with it because of the context of the scene is that it earns the schmaltiness. There's, there's good content to be worked through. Um, not too long after this, he goes to his, he's having a hard time and he goes to his, um, who, who, uh, his psychiatrist and he demands mm-hmm. his psychiatrist see him and he won't see him. And at, at one, like kind of randomly after that, he walks out and states to a sitting room full of people. What if this is as good as it gets? Which is, you know, the name of the movie. But if there was any part of this movie that I thought was kind of, like, kind of stuffed in there, it was that. I didn't, I didn't really get the, the context or why he was saying it or who or, or what. Did you feel that uh, way? No, this is the movie's epiphany. I know, but I don't know. I mean, the camera angles were kind of I, like the, I, it's not like, I don't know why he had that epiphany right then. It's because his life is still shitty and he's still not happy. And I think the whole point is these three characters, Melvin, Simon, Helen Hunt, they're in life stages where when is it going to get better? Eventually your life gets better, but you just, you try, you try, you try and life doesn't get better. And I feel like at this point in the movie for all three characters, they're all thinking this thing. Sure. Why not have him say it to Greg Kinnear when he sits on the bench with him? It just seems so random. He doesn't for- care about him. He's going to say it to his fellow cohorts who are all in the same position. He is just like, well, you're all here for therapy. So why don't you guys, uh, like, uh, what is misery love company? Welcome to my life. What if this is as good as it gets? Meh, didn't like it. I, I, I think they could have set it up better. 
but <laughs> that's that's just one of the moments that landed flat. What didn't land flat for me? The amount of B characters in this movie that are good actors. Mm-hmm. You've got Yardley Smith, Wood Harris, Maya Rudolph, Jamie Kennedy, <laughs> Lisa Edelstein, Shane Black, Missy Pyle, Lawrence Kasdan. It's it's the Harold who, Ramis. Harold, Harold Ramis. Harold Ramis. <laughs> What's great about this movie is that you have all these characters that play authority figures are played by writer directors. So the 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 doctor is played by Harold Ramis, who is mm-hmm. the writer of Ghostbusters and the director of Groundhog Day. Uh, the therapist is played by Lawrence Kasdan, who wrote The Empire Strikes Back, the Indiana Jones movies, The Force Awakens, Solo. Um, and a bunch of other great dramas from the 90s. I think he also wrote French Kiss that we'll eventually um, review soon. Um, you have Shane Black as the uh, restaurant owner that Carol works in. and Which is such wants... a random role. All, like all he does is stand up once. <laughs> yeah, and Shane Black is the writer of the Lethal Weapon movies. He wrote uh, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, The Good Guys. Um, and then you have... Uh, James L. Brooks's Simpsons crew. So he's got Yardley Smith, who's the voice of Lisa Simpson. It just feels uh, like they went like the like they went to this this place where a whole bunch of people from Hollywood were just hanging out, and they're like, "Hey, who wants to come make a movie today?" Wait, what do you mean? Well, they have, like I was saying before, they have so many characters in this film that get just a little bit of screen time. Like if it's the waitresses at Helen Hunt's um, restaurant, if it's... Well, these, the waitresses were all, these were all new. They were fresh. They were brand new. I know. But what I'm saying is it's kind of a a who's who (laughs) of who comes up in Hollywood. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I mean, what what would be the alternative? Like non- The alternative, right. And the alternative is you're watching a movie and the people in that movie, you'd don't recognize from anything else. I'm just saying there were a lot of recognizable faces in the B actors in this film. You have like Kenny from um, from Frasier, who's the maitre d' at the restaurant that they go to. Oh, and uh, I can give you a tying jacket. What? Oh, they require a tying jacket, but we have some available. That was a weird one. Did you expect him to take like a smaller role that he had such a big role in Frasier and this is just kind of like a little... I guess it's a big James L. Brooks movie. Well, but it's not really like, a big role on Frasier either. He's like a... Yeah, but he's in a bunch of episodes. Sure. He's on, he's on like 30, 40 episodes. No, he's on more than that. But yeah. but it's, it's I just a James figured L. Brooks he's the, film. Yeah, he's the camp counselor in Heavyweights. Like, you deserve more, man. You're the <laughs> camp counselor in Heavyweights. I guess so. I was just I was just happy to see him. I was too. You mentioned the medical industry earlier and how expensive it is and mm-hmm. how surprised you were to see like a doctor make a house call. Um, Greg Kinnear does not have health insurance in this. And so he has $61,000 in medical bills and has to move out of his place and he has to sell all of his stuff and he has to start, he has to borrow money from somebody and it ends up being his parents who we kind of understand through the course of things he has had a little bit of a falling out because his dad does not approve of him being gay. Right. Yeah. Um, And so they go on this road trip to have Greg Kinnear ask his parents for money. And I was so surprised that at the 60 minute mark in this film, 
we still weren't on the road trip. Yeah. So let's talk about like the lead up to that. So Melvin's got to take care of this dog who he's not excited to take care of this dog at first. Um, and it's very disruptive to his life. And I think that's the cause of him going to his therapist is that it's like, God, now I have this to deal with. Rawr! Well, it's because, um, is it because he loses his dog? Uh, yeah, maybe something, something to that effect. Yeah. So he gets the dog. He finds that the dog has the same, uh, OCD tendencies that he has, that he can't step on the crack on the sidewalk. And so the dog also avoids the crack on the sidewalk, which is just brilliant dog training it's charming it's super charming it's so good i love it and what melvin finds is at first his pattern was disrupted the dog disrupted his pattern but then he was able to assimilate the dog into his pattern so now he goes to the restaurant with the dog and that's part of what he does and what we what he runs into is that eventually simon comes home he has to say goodbye to the dog and so now he's got to figure out a way to keep Simon around because if he keeps Simon around, he keeps the dog around. He doesn't really care about Simon. He's still a homophobe. He kind of, he doesn't get along with Simon whatsoever, but he loves the dog. He gets along with the dog. He needs the dog in his life. Mm-hmm. So Simon is going to have to move out unless he gets some cash so that he can stay in the building and he can get cash from his parents and Cuba Gooding Jr. basically asks Melvin, can you be the one who drives Simon down? And he only says yes, because Helen Hunt is like, man, it's, you know, you, because he's complaining about it. And she's like, you. He wants me to take his car and his client to Baltimore. I want your life for one minute where my big problem is somebody offers me a free convertible so I can get out of this city. Blah, blah, blah. I'll play the clip. But he, he basically guilts her into coming with him uh, because they have that whole interchange where she's like, wait, so you're telling me that you like, since you did a solid for me, I have to do this for you and come with you on this trip with Greg. (laughs) What's that line? He's like, Melvin, I'd rather not. What has that got to do with it? Funny. I thought it was a strong point. Right, and no, ain't she sweet. I need a hand, and where'd she go? Are you saying accepting your help obligates me? Is there any other way to see it? Because the whole thing, and this is why the script is so just like, everything falls into place so perfectly, where she's adamant, like, you have to accept my thanks for taking care of my son. He's like, no thanks, no thanks required, please. No, 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 I don't want any part of it. Which is really good character stuff for us to understand about Melvin is like, he's not doing it to get anything in return. He just wants things the way they are. Like he doesn't want anything to be paid back. And this is the one he's like, ah, okay, you can you can do this because I need this. I need you to do this service for me is that you can be a chaperone. And I think what what makes that more complicated is that, yes, I think you're right. Melvin doesn't want anything necessarily but her service, but him taking anything from her continues their exchange Mm -hmm. in a relationship where he would then feel like he owes her being nice or being closer to her. Like when, when she's offering his like this 23 page thank you note, he's like, no, 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 no. And it seems like there's more layers there. It's not just him saying, 
no, all I needed was for you to work here. We're fine. But it's in addition, like if you give me that, that means like I, I owe you something back also in return. And yeah, I don't even want like, to touch what that is. Let's just not get into that. Yeah. Just... <laughs> but then he turns around a second later and says, you should come on this trip with me. And he holds it over her head. And Helen Hunt has been this whole time just suffering with like, racked with like, I don't know what to do. I don't want to owe this person anything, but what he did was so kind. But I've also seen him be anti-Semitic and super rude. I don't know what to do about this. And that complication is you need a character like Melvin to cut through it and say, we're going to continue the plot now (laughs) by you coming with me. Well, it's great because it's like this opportunity is like, if she goes on this one trip, like two days, she comes back, she will be absolved of the guilt. Mm -hmm. She will have done a task that did Melvin a solid, that isn't sex, that isn't weird. It's kind of weird, but she's going to go on this road trip with these kind of strangers, but then it'll be over. She'll be done and she won't have to worry about it all. And we as the viewer will feel like we're watching Melvin offer this to her and we're like, this is a, this is good. This is good. We can get to a state of normal after this. I want to see them. I want to see her go. I want her to go on this trip because I want her to be absolved of the guilt. Right. Because she's been racking herself with it for a long time. And her mom, who's played by, um, what's her name? Shirley Knight. Shirley Knight, who is also one year older than Jack Nicholson. I was thinking that I was like, you know, in a different movie, 15 years beforehand, they might have been, you know, yeah. the romantic pairs. Um, but she uh, she's like, babe, it's fine. Just take it. Stop fretting so much. Come out and have drinks with your mama. One of the great scenes in this movie. Who needs these thoughts? So what are you saying that you're frustrated? Leave me be. Why are you doing this? What is it you want? I hope getting me thinking about everything that's wrong when all I want to do is not do that has some purpose. Really, Mom, what is it you want? What? I want us to go out. Okay. Her whole speech when she's sitting there just trying to explain to her mom how hard her last like five years has been and how she doesn't know what to do about this guilt and she's just crying trying to finish this letter it was it it wasn't surprising to me that she won best actor or actress and jack nicholson won best best actor for this yeah it's and it won best writing it's so good so finally we have this opportunity to get these three together and um it's an uncommon trifecta troika Mm -hmm. Because you have Um, Greg Kinnear, who is sensitive and nice, but a complete mess when it comes to like what he's going to do with his life now that he has has had everything turned upside down. Yeah. Um, And it's we also need to establish at this point in the movie that he Simon's kind of given up on his life. Mm -hmm. He was a he was a painter who was living in New York city that had an art dealer and things were going this way. He had his dog and everything was great, but he since is completely he got attacked, depressed now. 
he's depressed, he's almost suicidal, and he's lost the will to create. And I think me and Kelly as as writers and filmmakers ourselves can relate to it sadly of I've been there. Yeah, how um terrifying that void is that the thing that you get up in the morning for is gone. That's depression. That's depression is that there's Mm -hmm. no reason to get up. You might as well just stay there. And with with Helen Hunt, she has a different kind of expression of this void where she had been taking care of her son. She had been the sole person to do this and sacrifice her life. So she had a huge reason for doing what she was doing, which is is completely legitimate. And then once that disappears, she doesn't know what she's going to do with her life now. And it's not so dramatic as all that, but it feels like that in the moment. Like mm-hmm. if you're if your life just has a dramatic shift, it might be a good thing, but it still causes a little bit of it it means that you have to do work. And so oh. she has to do that. Greg Kinnear has to do that. And with Melvin, it's just all about he's interacting with people. He's disrupting his routine to spend time with people and do a favor for somebody. I want to take an aside and just kind of remark on, this is a Hollywood film. This is a Hollywood screenplay. And I think unlike a movie like Before Sunrise, which is an extremely deep movie as an indie film though, that it's not Before Sunrise. Yeah, it's got Ethan Hawke, but it's it's not it definitely didn't do Hollywood business the way that as good as it gets does you know Oscar darling you know blockbuster starring Jack Nicholson big big movie, um, but for a movie to be a Hollywood movie to get this deep to be so intricately weaved is just we're already like this podcast episode is just already remarking on like that's special but it's like it needs to be remarked on this is so special because most Hollywood films are so shallow. And yeah. we'll never get this deep. And uh, I'm just, I'm, I'm blown away the more and Yay. more we talk about it. I love, I love when, when movies blow us away like this. Um, and, and to, I think the, the depth comes in this road trip when they all leave, when you have seen the, like, cause we're, Ryan and I are best friends. And if we had said some of the things that these characters said to each other in real life, like it's, it's sometimes hard to imagine what that would feel like. Cause like Greg Kinnear, before they go on this trip, not too long beforehand, uh, calls Jack Nicholson's character, an absolute horror of a human being like, <laughs> but they end up roommates and kind of really good friends by the end of this. Mm-hmm. And the same thing with Helen Hunt. She, she rips Melvin. Uh, I guess Carol rips Melvin, a new one, like every third scene in this, even though she's very kind, generally she she's and, and the stuff that Melvin says, but the, to have all these characters in one place together, it really takes some smart writing. Yeah. And it, and probably editing too, but I, I, I want the viewers out there who saw this movie and might've disregarded it because of any aspects of it. It took really smart writing to make this movie happen. Yeah. So we get Carol and Simon together in the car and naturally they're going to hit it off right away. They're good friends, Um, which pisses Melvin off. He's like, what about me? Why don't I get special attention? I'm a I'm a tortured soul. And I'm the reason why you're here. He does that. Shut shut up. He does that 
competitive suffering thing where, yeah, uh, yeah where Greg Kinnear's like, I've had a super hard life. And then Melvin's, Melvin's like, hey, my dad smoked five packs a day <laughs> yeah. for Christmas. He gave me smokes. He said, smoke up, Johnny. <laughs> She's like, Melvin, it didn't work in the breakfast club. It's not going to work here. Now shut up. <laughs> um, so they get to Baltimore. And um, uh, Carol finds out that her son is healthy and happy and scored a goal in soccer, which she just, you know, so happy, so happy. She's like, I'm happy. We're going out. And Simon's like, I'm going to a weird time for me. I'm staying in. And so she's like, goes to Jack Nicholson. You're taking me out. And Jack Nicholson's like, OK, I guess we'll do that. Can I, <laughs> no, do he, your Jack Nicholson eyebrows. I'll tell I'll tell the audience if you did it right. Oh, <laughs> he's trying to get him there, folks. But nobody can. That was good. Uh, so after much cleaning, which Melvin needs to do, and because of his you know condition, his ailment, he finally gets to the point where he can take her out. So they get to the restaurant. Uh, there's a dress code at the restaurant, which I'm so glad we live on the West Coast because that's so not a thing. Oh, no. Like, especially in Portland. Um, I, there's always people from New York that come here and they're just like, there's people going out in plaid. <laughs> it's like, it's yeah, like, it's cool. Yeah, bro. Deal with um it. yeah I, I do you think is it still a thing on the east coast east coasters let us know is this still a thing is dress code still a, an in, important thing in probably bigger cities it's it's a thing yeah okay and and i like getting dressed up but it's also yeah. nice not to so, if you don't want to they go to the restaurant they're like you have to wear a suit and tie this is where um fraser's boss kenny shows up and they're like here's our you know dingy thing and for a guy with ocd it's like we know we're like this is never going to happen. He's never going to put that jacket on. Never going to happen. I liked the jacket, though. I wanted yeah, him to put it on. Nice jacket. nice jacket. But Melvin's like, I really want to be on a date with her. I really want to make this work. Yeah, so he's and like, so, hang out here. <laughs> I'll, I'll be right back. And he drives to the nearest tie and suit store. He, he jets <laughs> to the nearest tie and suit store. He gets it. He jets back. And it, he looks really good. He looks awesome almost yeah. sexy as she almost betrays the word sexy but he, she just yeah. says he's very handsome he starts off the scene wearing one of those it's not quite a baseball sleeve tee but it, it's like a really long short sleeve uh it's a very button casual button up and and just big sleeves he looked exactly like my grandpa like how very many, 90s yeah. yeah very 90s of his age like Jack Nicholson was born two years after my grandpa. And so it's like, it's a very fitting, um, his, his dress. But as soon as he puts on a suit jacket and it like kind of corrals the, um, the collar, I'm just like, you, you look sharp. I, I, I can see you being kind of attractive. Yep. Yep. And that's it really the thing. takes this move. <laughs> this is, but it's funny because in, in rom-coms, we often see the, like the makeover scene. Um, and it <laughs> the, takes, you know, the glow up. Yeah. a whole bunch of time and with with a man it generally just takes putting on a suit jacket yep yep <laughs> we got it or easy. father the bride too it's dyeing your hair are you gonna dye your hair i don't have hair you asshole no you do it actually looks like it's coming in nice and thick <sighs> i'm so glad this is a podcast not a vlog or a youtube <laughs> channel i'm i'm never gonna dye my hair i'm gonna let it go silver fox my beard, my beard. I'll always have a beard. We'll see what happens. You'll dye your beard. beard. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, this is the, I, I think for his, for Melvin as a romantic interest, 
this is a crucial moment that this is this is the turning point he doesn't need anything from carol at this point he wants to do something good for carol and be a good boyfriend material type thing well i mean yeah and he, he wants to do something good but he does he doesn't need something from her but he wants something yeah so i guess you're changing my mind that it's not a hundred percent selfish motivation it's like 80 percent selfish motivation throughout the movie but this is one of those moments where it's not selfish. He wants, he really admires Carol. He really likes her and he really wants to be a good date for her. And so he does this thing and it's such mm-hmm. an admirable action. Well, and, he does it you, to the best of his abilities, which is pretty astounding that he would, he would jet to a different part of the town to buy the suit and tie. He doesn't say, let's go somewhere else. He's like, fine, we'll go here. We'll stay <laughs> yeah, here. But I guess the argument you're giving me is he's not as much of a shit as he could be. Wait, what do you mean? Well, because it's it's not like he could have just taken it and said, okay, uh, f- in order to let you have a good night, I'll not, I'll, I'll suffer through this and take the suit jacket that I'm given. He's like, stay here, hang out without me for a while. I'll be back because I have to go do this thing and get a, my own suit yeah. jacket. Oh, he's all in. I'm so admir- ad- admiring him for being so all in. Oh. So... I, I, so, he's, yeah, he's neutral for me because he's, he's Would you slowly say this becoming is a huge act of him to do. Sure. I, what, what I'm saying is, is this brings his character to a more neutral ground. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't yeah, make he's him not admirable. Amazing. Right. Yeah. He's not amazing. Okay. okay. <laughs> but, but this is the first time we see him in a light that you would actually find it plausible that he could be romantically viable for Carol. Mm-hmm. Before, it's just like, he's an ass. There's no way. But now it's like, oh, I I can see it. Yeah. And Carol, this whole time, is um, dressed in like the... uh, So I'm just going to come out and admit this right now. I have a huge crush on Helen Hunt. Um, Really? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, It's This must have been a very nice movie for you. (laughs) It was... Well, um, I, professional, and she's super attractive, and she just does very good work. Um, but her her dress that she wears with um, all the it's kind of like a red dress with polka dots ish on it. Um, she's out, outstandingly charming and cute in this scene. Yeah, it's very elegant modernist dress. Not not like fancy, like Edith Head fancy dress. No, but, but it's it feels a very like the. Dress. It feels like the late 40s were brought into the yeah. um, into the 90s. Yeah, very classy. And then um, he he comes back and sits down and he he insults her immediately. And then she's like, you better compliment me right now or I'm leaving. And mm-hmm. that's very hard for Melvin to do is to say a nice thing. And so we get to see him kind of like squirm for a bit. Um, and he says a very nice thing. Okay. Um I, I think he says a very nice thing. The thing he says is, I've got this, what, ailment. <laughs> My doctor, a shrink that I used to go to all the time, he says that in 50 or 60% of the cases, a pill really helps. I hate pills. Very dangerous thing, pills. Hate. I'm using the word hate here about pills hate my compliment is that night when you came over and told me that you would never um um, all right well 
Uh, you were there. You know, you know what you said. Well, my compliment to you is the next morning I started taking the pills. I don't quite get how that's a compliment for me. You make me want to be a better man. That's maybe the best compliment of my life. And she says, that is the nicest compliment anybody's ever said to me. And it makes me very worried for her love life previous to this movie. (laughs) Oh, sure. Well, we, I think it's already established that she's had a shitty love history. Yeah. Oh, we didn't even talk about the guy that she like, because <laughs> the guy she brings home before, like they start making out on the couch and it's it's just this guy that licks her forehead on the first date um, and like really goes after that right boob. Like, yeah, that's his game is I'm really start with this right boob and keeps tickling her. And then she has to go take care of his kid. Her kid throws up on her and she comes back and he gets like a little bit of the throw up on his hand and he's like, I'm out of here. Yeah. And he's it's it, I feel so bad because I'm like, man, I would just love to help you take care of your kid, Helen Hunt. That's exactly. all I want. <laughs> it's a bad date. But anyway, so he's he says that thing. And I guess I can believe that that's one of the best compliments. But it's still one of those things that it's it's nice, but it's 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 kind of a compliment towards her well it's very much a compliment towards her but it's also reflective of him right it's a very selfish compliment it is and it's not that doesn't make it bad but when she said that it was the greatest compliment she'd ever received i felt really bad for her yeah yeah and but that's why this movie is so good is that when he pays the nicest compliment it still has to do with him Mm -hmm. yeah it's a very believable compliment yeah his whole thing is because of you i'm taking my pills (laughs) like Uh uh-huh you make me want to be a better man. That's a really succinct way of putting it. A more like direct way of putting it is I'm taking my pills because of you. That's the which compliment. he says as well. Yeah. Yeah. That's the compliment. And I, I feel really bad. I should have wrote, wrote, wrote this down, but he says something else later in the movie, which I thought was a thousand times better than you make me want to be a better man. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. It's the, it's the last scene. Um, I might be the only person on the face of the earth that knows you're the greatest woman on earth. I might be the only one who appreciates how amazing you are in every single thing that you do. And how you are with Spencer. Spence. And in every single thought that you have and how you say what you mean and how you almost always mean something that's all about being straight and good. I think most people miss that about you. And I watch them wondering how they can watch you bring their food and clear their tables and never get that they just met the greatest woman alive. And the fact that I get it makes me feel good about me. (laughs) That was it. Wow. (laughs) It's them taking that thought and bringing it to its more kind, selfless conclusion. Yeah. Oh, I should have danced with you was one of the lines that I really liked. I should have danced with you. What a great movie line. Mm -hmm. That's Mm -hmm. what it is. That's 
that is what reflects change and reflects him. Oh, you know what that is? That's him finally getting away from the selfishness because the first version is selfish of you make me want to be a better man. I take my pills because of you. Hey, I should have danced with you is that's the selfless line where we can tell he doesn't like being touched. He's not a dancer, Mm -hmm. but he he would have danced with her. He could have danced with her. He should have danced with her. Like they're acting when they have their first kiss, which is it's it's great. It's after he says that she's um, she slips around the table at the restaurant and kisses him. And he is you can tell that he wants to kiss her, but it's so hard for him to be touching and mixing basically what in his mind are lots of germs um, mm-hmm. back and forth between him and another person. And she is all into it, but also being very soft and gentle. It's it's a good first kiss. Mm-hmm. Like I was asking myself, like, wow, she's really going for it. Why? Why? And I was just. <laughs> yeah, I also was. But like, I was th- oh, this is she's this- been dr- she's been drinking. <laughs> <laughs> she has. She's been at the bar for a while. while um, a suit. <laughs> but we have to ask, well, what has he done for her? And what has he been doing for her? And it's just kind of she. And this is the hard part. This is where we hit our limit as the gentleman's guide to rom-coms is that we don't have a lady chiming in here. I'll be like, um, um, but for me, the way I see it is this, this man would go through mm, difficulties to pursue her, that he would chase her and he would do anything to make her life right. Whether that's selfishly motivated or not, he would do great, great. He's a man capable of doing great, great things. Okay, go on. Um, that's all I got at that juncture. Okay, I I think it's it's partially that. I think we can just give um, Carol the benefit of the doubt and say that she had a good day. A date sounds fun. He doesn't seem as horrible as usual, and he's there. And she's kind of and, not desperate for affection, but God, it's been a while since she's had connection. And I can certainly understand that of like... Uh, and it's like this is a, this is for her at the at her mo- at this moment romance is as good as it gets like it's not going to get better than this moment so. hey roll credits so it's just like well if this is as good as it gets i might as well get mine while i can get mine and she gets some yeah and and eventually he like tries to have a normal conversation with her and she asks him why he okay this is a really complicated conversation where right after they have the kiss she's like why did you really bring me on this trip? And having not seen the movie for a while, I was like, ooh, is this a trap? Is this a trap? Is she trying to get him to say that he wanted to sleep with her? Yeah. And I like this movie is so well written that I thought that he was maybe thinking that too. And then he says, like, he's like, there's so many reasons why. One of them was I thought maybe you would sleep with Greg Simon. Simon. And <laughs> And she's just like, what the fuck is wrong with like, you? Like, it's an, in, it's a, it's a, it's quite a statement to make to another human being. Oh, I, I thought it's you'd just, sleep with my friend who's also yeah. gay. <laughs> it's everything wrong with him. And it's just kind of like us watching it. We're just like, bro, 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 well, bro. Because his mind is, is a place that basically thinks through everything, right? Yeah. And... It was it was searching for the least vulnerable thing for him to say, which ended up being the most caustic and and kind of gross thing for him to say. 
Yeah. And then she leaves and has this beautiful night with Greg Kinnear. And earlier in the movie, we get a, a story where Greg Kinnear says that at one point in time, he used to draw his mom when he was younger um, naked. And it was like this very vulnerable moment where he was sharing that. And his, his dad caught him doing this at one point in time and beat him unconscious. And so when Helen Hunt comes back, he, and as we said earlier, Greg Kinnear doesn't have like a... a any any reason to paint right now but he sees helen hunt from behind as she's drawing a bath and then says i have to paint you he basically leo dicaprio's her i believe you were blushing mr big artiste and it's totally inspired and it's one of those artistic moments where he is the most purest form of an artist finding his muse and it's so believable Mm -hmm. And so moving, especially to people like us who are writers and we're just like, yes, I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, And uh, we see them. He does sketches of her of all these nude poses that she does for him. And she's so comfortable with him because he's gay and he doesn't it's not a sex thing. It's just a beauty thing of two humans connecting. And it's it's two humans having intimacy that isn't sexual, but it uses But it's so intimate. It's so intimate and it's sexually intimate. That's not sexual. Yeah. I mean, can you we know? call it sensually intimate? Yeah, but it's it still involves nakedness, which I think is really important. Like, it's still a physical act, what happens between them, that's not romantic. Yeah. It, I mean, it is kind of, it is romantic in a, it's odd because it's almost romantic in a non-sexual way. But it's still sexual because it has to do with bodies. Yeah, and- exactly. It's it's such a beautiful, complicated scene, and I love when Jack Nicholson or when Melvin gets there the next morning, and Did you have sex with her. Yeah, and he shows up, and they're having like kind of that great post-coitus breakfast where it's like they're That's both dressed exactly in it. robes, and it's like, oh man, doesn't she say it's it was better than sex? To hell with sex! It was better than sex. We held each other. What I need, he gave me great. And she tassels his hair. And the face that Greg Kinnear makes at Jack Nicholson of the biggest shit eating. Yeah, he's I've just like, that's seen. right. That's 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 what happened last night. He's like, I got some because for for Simon to have that artistic reawakening and it was like a reawakening that we can tell was like once in a lifetime reawakening. Of course it's better than sex. Oh yeah. It's way better than sex. A thousand times better than sex. It's the greatest thing he could ever had was a night with Carol like that. And I mean, we're not saying that we don't have good sex, of course. No, we do. We do. We do. We do. And have had sex before. Yes. Yes. But art is great. Yes. <laughs> and when I think the artists in us were like, Yes. <laughs> Go get some art. <laughs> So yeah, the the remainder of the movie, uh, Carol is rightly pissed at um, at Melvin, and I I saw it as like, for her, she rightly is thinking, why did I ever consider this guy as a romantic person? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and a lot of her anger is just regret. That only happened for like twenty minutes, probably. Yeah. Yeah. But that brings us to the third act where by now Simon has been kicked out of his apartment and Melvin. And he pulls a Mr. Darcy. Melvin does. Yeah. And he arranges 
for at least for the time being it's not very clear of how long but basically melvin gets him moved in like to well melvin's and good apartment. moved in yeah. into melvin's apartment and he's like look i got you bro i got you and he doesn't tell like there's an opportunity when they're on the way home from the road trip for him to before we even know about it for him to tell helen hunt this but he doesn't and mm-hmm. it's it's one of those things where you see his character shift from a very selfish prig who just two days ago would have utilized that for his best advantage and like bragged about what a selfless act it was. And instead he just kind of moves him in. And it is the most, it is the most selfless act that he does in the film. Yeah. But I still think at no point in this movie would he have bragged about it because he doesn't do he doesn't have actions to get things in return, right? He does have those CDs in his car um, to try to to try to elicit a, a passion, and then he he also, whenever Greg Kinnear is um, saying, "I've had a hard life," then he's like, "I've had a hard life too." So yeah, may, yeah. maybe maybe he wouldn't have, but um, it's it's still noble that he doesn't. They've definitely earned the fact that Melvin did this thing for Simon, and no. Like, you never see it much of a temptation for him to make it clear in front of Carol to be like, hey, I'm still a nice guy. He doesn't do that. Like, he just, he won't do that. He just does it for the thing in itself. That he's just like, Simon needs, Simon needs someone. Fine, I can do it. I'll do it. I'm there. Right. And I... This movie does a, a neat trick, at least for me. Um, I bet there's people who see these relationships in this film and says no way would a person in real life who has those kind of relationships with each other ever come to the point of being friends but the optimist in me that wants to believe in that and has seen people become friends who are very diametrically opposed in ways believes in this film believes in its message so we get them um home and uh melvin and simon are are back at Melvin's place and when they enter they are greeted by the dog and they love the dog um and we at this point it's like two hours in and I was thinking I could go for another hour give me another two hours I'm not exhausted at all you ever watch a movie where it's like it's like a half an hour left when you pause it to like get a glass of water you're like half an hour (laughs) be over yeah but this movie's like I keep going I wanted to see the continuing adventures of um Simon and melvin yeah and and i really liked their dynamic i wanted to see melvin destroy his way through the art like field and uh for him to like for simon to teach melvin like hey you know this is the way to be nice and to like you know fall in love and be be kind to people and and then melvin on the other hand is like this is how you stick up for yourself kid yeah and so basically melvin still wants to do something about carol he wants to be with carol and simon gets to be the one who gives him the pep talk and it's just this beautiful thing that we've seen simon grow into such a strong confident person because of this experience that he's gone through he decided not to go to his parents that he's going to find his own way he doesn't need other people he gets help from other people which is great but he's not going to be dependent He's gonna he's gonna forge his own path, and there's just such a confidence that's just so beautiful to see. Yeah, yeah, super beautiful. And, and so basically, he gives him the pep talk to like, well, go do something about it. And then he goes over and he does something about it. And he talks to Helen Hunt, and she says, "Why can't I have a normal boyfriend?" And like, 
I, I don't know why she's calling him her boyfriend. That's that's a line that's like a very Hollywood line where it's like, man, this will play really good in the trailer. And I think and it, it did. Does. It did play really good in the trailer. Because then her mom is like, there's no such thing. Uh-huh. It doesn't exist. And and it's sweet, but they're not boyfriend, girlfriend at this point in time. <laughs> not yet. But it's like, it's one of those. I like it because it's kind of like a hinge point where you're like, oh, you said boyfriend. Did you say boyfriend? I think you said boyfriend. And it's like a gotcha moment for the characters. I guess. I wish where it... it's like you have to acknowledge that you said boyfriend. Yeah, but they don't use it as such. Didn't didn't he say, did you say boyfriend? Well, he said it to himself. Oh, well, still, I think that's a good hit. I think it I think it works. Yeah, I, yeah. I believe it. I, I don't dislike it. It just it's just one of those. It, it's one of those Hollywood. It's a very Hollywood moment. Um, yeah. Yeah. And then they basically go for a walk to get some nice warm rolls. And um, she that's when he uh, says, I should have danced with you. Yeah. And he commits to the whole movie. Like Ryan said, he wasn't stepping on any of the lines on the sidewalk and it's entertaining uh, for everybody. And then he he ends up realizing at one point in time that he's so happy with Helen that he's been distracted enough that he hasn't been stepping on or that he's been stepping on the lines for like a little while, like for like a couple seconds. And then he looks down and he's like, I was okay with that. And yeah, I think so. Well, we also see the locks on the door. He doesn't lock the door. Oh, and yeah, right. The idea is that he like if, if what Sarah's assessment was is correct, his personality has put him into a a place of rigidness and that rigidness comes down the longer he becomes vulnerable with with the people in his life yeah and we should disclaim like we're not commenting on actual this um, is not a medical podcast (laughs) we do not know what we're talking about we're not commenting on actual um obsessive compulsive personality disorder this is the language of the film but the film is saying he has this ailment and because of the experience that he went through, his ailments has been treated. Um, but I'm going to treat it. Yeah. I'm fairly confident that also from a clinical point of view, um, this is part of, this is a process of, um, uh, treating the ailment is, uh, I can't, Sarah used a term when we were watching is of he needs dysregulation or discombobulation or something <laughs> He, he needs his habits shook up in a in a good way that he can handle it. And they are shook up. And that's what's so astounding by the end is that the things that he wanted all these. He wanted Simon so the dog could be around. He wanted Carol so that he could be waited on properly. And what he found instead is love of his neighbor and love of this woman and his ailment being not as much of an ailment to him anymore. And it's just such a beautiful resolution for him. So it sounds like you're picking Jack Nicholson for who you would fall in love with. A little bit, a little bit. Cool. Um, What about you? I'm going to pick it's, it's hard because I, I think Greg Kinnear is one of those, those characters that I would relate to a lot and do, do relate to in a, in kind of an artistic sense, but Mm -hmm. I have to pick Helen Hunt. There isn't an ounce of my body that could say no. Um, her character in this film as well is one of those fun, fun self-sacrificing characters who, who is a perfect ambassador where she's like, she t- like, like Simon or like uh, Melvin says, she tells the truth, 
and she's a straight shooter and he likes that, but she's also extremely kind. And mm-hmm. that's kind of one of my ideals. <laughs> yeah. And she's so beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, for Helen Hunt for me, Jack Nicholson for you. And I think it's time for us to rate this movie. Ryan, how much schmaltz does it have? Ooh, uh, four. Yep. It's got, it's got some schmaltzy moments. Depth? Five. Chemistry? Five. Ke- five? No, way. All across the board, you got to consider the whole movie and everyone in tandem with each other. I'm not if saying you... do the actors have chemistry with each other, but is there romantic chemistry? That's a different thing. And I think this movie needs to be judged on the chemistry between the whole cast. Because the relationship between Simon and Carol is such a unique and special one that their chemistry is dynamite. Fair enough. I'm going to give it a 5-2 then. Last Ability. This one's a little harder because it's a late 90s film and I don't know a lot of people who watch this movie very often. Because Melvin says some things that I was like, oh my God, I feel bad that I'm watching this. in like, <laughs> like I was embarrassed of the things that he was saying. It was like, you cannot say that. <laughs> right. And and there's uh, that's the, again, kind of the magic of this movie is he says some pretty horrendous stuff. And especially he uses like 90s pejoratives, which are a little dirty, uh, more yeah. dirty than than we would ever. Uh, I mean, it's, just, it's bad. But I think you need to get this character to that point of unlikability. And so where I don't know anybody who would approve of the language he uses or would agree with him. (laughs) But at the same time, he, this movie's writing does the trick of it. Right. Yep. Yeah. Um, Yep. So I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to give this a three currently. And that's only, I'm going the middle of the road because it's, it's, it lasts for me, but I think it's going to be harder for younger generations to jump on board with it and not kind of write it off right away. Yeah. Um, a similar timed film is you've got mail came out around the same time. And that doesn't, that's still a nineties film and the technology and you've got mail is dated, but there's something about its attitude that much more universal. Exactly. Whereas mm-hmm. As Good As It Gets is like, oh, this is a 90s film that I think in 30 years we're going to be watching it, but it's going to feel far more of its time. That's a classic mm-hmm. that we're like still considering like the way we look at Sunset Boulevard right now is like, that's a classic film. But we don't we don't consider it like part of an era that you and I belong to. That's like an era that's like from before our time. Mm-hmm. Whereas As Good As It Gets our children are going to watch it and they're like, Oh, that came out before I was born. That's not, it's not really a part of my life. You know, it's part of my parents' life kind of, but yeah, but we watch classic movies because we love them as well. Yeah. But I think it's going to feel more, you're right. It's going to feel more dated, but not any less classic. Sure. I feel that, um, uh, for writing, I'm going to give this a 4.5 because I think it's brilliant and it does some amazing tricks. I think there's, there's uh, a couple of, like I said, I don't like when he says it's as good as it gets. Is this as good as it gets? It's, You're crazy. It's I, the best scene. It's the best Couldn't, scene. I mean, it's, it's the best of, scene. No, like in terms of when you do, when you do the show reel at the Oscars and you're like, 
a tribute to the 90s. They're going to use that clip. Eh, I, I don't care. They're going to use I, that clip. I don't care if it's iconic. I think it was. And maybe this doesn't have anything to do with the writing. Maybe it has to do with the editing because it seems like he came out of nowhere and he walked into a different office. Because when we see him walk into that building, he walks through a hallway and directly into this office. And then he exits and he's all of a sudden in a waiting room. It just... It was, I, I just, I was like, why is he here? Why is he yelling at these people? They all look like professionals too. (laughs) Well, they're in Manhattan going to see their psychiatrist. Of course they all look like professionals. That's true. I'm giving it a 4.5. I'm giving it a 5.5. I'm giving it an A plus. No. Uh, Fine. I'm giving it a five out of five. And I will say much like Pride and Prejudice, the book is probably going to be the best written literary thing. This will probably be the best script Hmm. for the moment. That we've encountered. This is the best script. Hmm. I don't know about that. There's, I think Emma Thompson's Sense and Sensibility script out does this for me. All right. All right. Let's, let's be it. Uh, Academy about it. Best original screenplay. Out of the ones we've watched? Uh, out of the ones we watched. And I'm saying like, good luck future films of like, derailing this as best screenplay i'm looking at our our list of movies like i think nora efron is going to give this movie a run for its money but i don't think it'll derail it i think nora efron's going to blow this out of the water we'll see it, it kind of depends but i'm i'm sticking i'm sticking to it Ooh, before sunrise sorry no way no way no way okay i'm gonna say before like before sunrise um had a better I, I a better dialogue um just just barely but i think this it was only dialogue that's not fair that is fair uh that's like saying die hard had better actions like it's die hard of course it had better action but this, this movie had tons movie? of dialogue but i think this movie's plot and the way that they got their characters from a to b is admirable so i'm gonna give 4.5 i i would i think before sunrise has more dialogue (laughs) but i admire the use of dialogue yeah i would say i would say best original screenplay um having just looked through our list okay yeah and Let's yeah. Let's so, see. Uh, so overall, extremely good. Um, let's pick our movie for next week. Let's let's pick da- our movie. Da- 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 Do you need me to get the dice? No. Uh, why don't you just lay off the dice for today? <laughs> um, sure. <laughs> I've been meaning to talk to you about all the dice you've been using. All right. Went to the randomizer. I'm really afraid of some of these movies that we're going to get. <laughs> yeah. Like, um, well, Leap Year for one. Uh, it's in that, like, two, as soon as 2010 started, yeah. where it just, I get a little scared. Uh, give me any number from one to 160. 160. Brokeback Mountain. All right. We're going back into the Ang Lee world. All right. All right. This is great. Oh, this is going to make me so sad. I'm so sad that Heath Ledger's gone. 
Um, but I'm very excited to get into this. Uh, it was either Brokeback Mountain or 159, Pretty Woman. So close. Whoa. Ooh. Ooh, classic next to a classic. All right. So uh, have you seen this yet? Nope. Nope. I haven't. Oh, great. I've only seen it once. So this is going to be good. I think this is one of the only movies that we've watched that you haven't seen. So I'm very excited about that. I remember when this that movie came out. And I had to like, I didn't even, I didn't even see it. And I had to defend it to like my Christian friends of like, it's a gay movie. It was like the, the big gay movie, mm-hmm. like a mainstream gay romance film. And I was like, not all movies need to be about straight people. <laughs> I was like, I don't know why I have to tell you this. but <laughs> <laughs> I thought you knew this. Oh, actually, let's see. What is today? Uh, the 26th. Okay. Yeah. And so the the one after that is going to be when we do Harry Met Sally. Great. Yeah. With our special guest. With our special guest, Aaron Carlson. Great. Tell me, tell me, Ryan, what's the most romantic thing that happened in your life this week? Oh, right. Most romantic thing that happened is, um, this is kind of cheating, but um, my son has started to laugh. Oh, that's... And it's not you know, romantic, romantic. But there's a romance to it. Yeah. So my son has started to laugh and... Did he throw up on you right afterwards? A little bit. (laughs) But it's, um, it's one of those things where it's like, it's a cliche, but my son's laugh is music. It's the greatest music that, you know, can be written and you won't be able to experience, like, you'll be able to listen to my son's laugh, but you won't hear it the way I hear it. You know, like you'll be close, but no one will understand how joyous it is to hear your own. Not even Sarah. Laugh. Oh, oh, no, oh yeah, she doesn't okay. get it. She doesn't get it. <laughs> um, let's see. For me, the most romantic thing um, this week is we. Well, I mean, I already talked about Parks and Rec, but we finished the series and um, watching those last episodes with Robin. She was crying like almost the whole time. And that's yeah. really pretty. Um, Robin and I also, we posted up a commercial that we made together. And um, a lot of people said that we were a really good team. And so that was really sweet stuff. So, mm. yeah. You guys are making a good team. You guys oh. are good. Uh, you guys are good professionals too. Thanks. We try really hard. In our industry, it's hard to be a good professional. So. Uh, I also want to mention that I finally watched To All the Boys I Loved Before. I'm starting to dip my toes in oh, the yeah. rom-coms. So I want to say that I I liked it. It's, <laughs> and I want to say that as far as I can tell, it was very good for a Netflix original movie. What was your favorite thing so about it? it? Um, I thought the protagonist was actually pretty great. Um, I think her name is Lana Condor. Lana, I think it's Lana Condor. Cool name. She was in... Yeah, um, she did a she did a wonderful job. It's a very good teen rom com, so I was pretty pleased. So that was uh, another romantic thing that I experienced. Have you checked out the uh, Sweet Magnolias yet? No, but it's on my list. Okay, um, I have a lot of catching up to do because I'm I'm a seasonal Netflix viewer that. When Stranger Things comes out, I just subscribe and I watch Stranger Things. And then if anything else is out there, I'll watch it, but then I'll cancel. And this is the first time because I wanted to like catch up on the Netflix rom-coms. It's like, you know what? I'm just going to do it. Like, so you kind of have a roller coaster season. relationship with Netflix. Really do. Really do. I probably canceled on them four separate times. 
Um, Netflix is like, we can't handle this. <laughs> Sorry, you're just you're too chaotic for me right now. I I I need I need more stability need some, in my life. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> in my subscribers, where can uh, people find us on the internet? People can find us all over the place, but mainly Facebook and Instagram at romcomgents. You can also email us, send us any questions, comments, and or concerns you had about the previous episode, or if you had anything that you really loved that we missed, and you can email us at romcomgents at email dot... Gosh, I always do that. Damn it. Uh, Romcomgents at gmail.com. And uh, yeah, just reach out to us. Uh, We'll reach out back. If you want to send any love letters to any friends, please reach out and uh, maybe we can make that happen too. If you can uh, help us out also, if you really like what you're listening to, the biggest, you know, birthday present you can do for us, even though it's not our birthday, is um, just tell your friends. If you think if you think your friends would like a podcast like this, let them know that we're around. Please, um, there's and- nothing that you can do more for a podcast that's just starting off than letting people know that you like it. And uh, rating us or posting a review, especially writing a review on iTunes, would be a huge help. Um, yeah. And speaking of birthdays, though, ours are in the same week in July. And so we'll do we'll do a birthday bash. Ooh, Ooh, it's gonna be fun. We, is there allow... are there any birthday themed rom coms out there? Um, good question. That is a good challenge. To all the birthdays I've loved before. Exactly. <laughs> all right, let's kill this. All right, I love you. I love you. <clears throat> and this is where we will say a goodbye. Right, Kelly must bid you adieu. Thank you for listening to our review. Rate and subscribe, we'll even take a bribe. So see you next week on A Gentleman's Guide. To rom-coms. What's the dog's name? Rydell? Verdun? Verdun. Verdell. Verdell. (laughs) Verdell.